Digital is a platform to incubate and expand on research undertaken through Gallery 44's exhibitions and residencies. This new platform, consisting of web projects, video walkthroughs, and podcasts, considers how digital space may allow broader access to the formation of artistic ideas. Listen to podcasts where curator of exhibitions and public programming, Lillian O'Brien Davis, explores how to ask a question through interviews with artists exhibiting at Gallery 44's physical space. G44 Digital is continually updated to feature new commissioned web projects and content. Most notably, a project by Christina Battle will launch in early 2023, coinciding with her exhibition, The Air We Breathe. Visit G44 Digital at digital.gallery44.org. Welcome to Moments the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wentmore, together in the same room. <laughs> Completely unprecedented. In Montreal. So, bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. <laughs> so, yes, who do we have on tap this week? Cecilia Alemani, the director of the 59th Venice Biennale, which we saw together five weeks ago, which feels like six months ago. Yeah, um, we went to the biennial near the end um, when it was closing, which is always, I think, nicer than going for like the kind of like sociopathic (laughs) (laughs) parade of the opening. Um, But uh, yeah, so it was it was interesting to think about seeing this show also with in mind that you were going to interview Cecilia for Mm. Art Toronto. Um, and think like, what does it, because, you know, these, this kind of coverage or conversations always need to happen, like almost before the show is open. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And what does it mean to interview somebody who, um, you know, the show has been up for seven months and it's almost about to close and like, you know, no doubt she's been interviewed mm. by everybody in the entire world. How did that feel? Did you feel like you were kind of grasping for new things mm-hmm. or... Yeah, how do you think it felt for her? It weighed on me pretty heavily, all of this, actually, um, because I just assumed she'd be burnt out. Right. Everybody on the planet right now is burnt out, never mind having to run um, an exhibition of that scale. Yeah. So I just assumed there would be very little juice in the tank for her to draw on. But she made my job so easy. She's Mm. so vibrant. and But also really communicated to me over a dinner one night in Toronto that prefaced us doing a public version of this talk for Art Toronto, I should say. Um, she she really made it clear to me that she was h- brokenhearted that the show was almost over. And so she had this sense of like saying goodbye to something that she had invested so much in. Mm-hmm. And we do talk a bit um, more about just how much more investment she was allowed to have because of the pandemic, finally. She had, you know, a lead up of um, basically one full year of research and commissioning, whereas most artistic directors of the biennial have three months in which to do that part you know that's mad which is mad (laughs) but still so she she has she has this in her dna now as an exhibition and i think she's she's saying goodbye to it quite fearfully and that gave her new energy i think for our conversation just Mm. to say like it, it produced a really fertile space um to move around in um, I would also say she's just en- endlessly energized by her artists. And it's mm. it's a rare curator that you meet up close 
for whom you can say that's true, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and particularly to be developing a show without being able to do studio visits. Is that right? Yes. Oh my god. I know. It makes my I just have to close my eyes against like facts like that. It's <laughs> just so painful to think about. Yeah. Um she she was able to do one trip um because she was commissioned in January 2020. Okay. She was able to get to Scandinavia and then flew home um just as things were shutting down and that was it. Yeah. That was it. And I mean, just to say there's 213 artists in the show, 180 of them have never been exhibited in the Venice Biennale context before, which is terrific, totally. And um, one of many unprecedented things about her show. Mm -hmm. So to do all of that from a chair in, you know, the East Village, I don't Mm -hmm. know. I don't Mm -hmm. know how you do it. But it had knock-on effects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that, I mean, when we were talking about you doing this conversation, I really wanted to hear about how she received um, any kind of criticism or coverage of the exhibition. Mm-hmm. But I also was really interested in seeing it together and reading the sort of didactic panels, which were really thoughtfully written, I thought, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a way that, um, like, I, I usually pay really close attention to those texts, those kind of, like, ancillary mm-hmm. texts that are not necessarily written by the curator mm-hmm. and are speaking to a kind of nebulous audience sometimes. Um, and I found those texts to be written really beautifully. So I'm, I think that you did get a chance to talk to her about writing and totally. about writing in and writing on. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited yeah. to hear that. Totally. And, and I'm sorry, I keep saying totally. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she, I mean, I, of course that's our bias here, but then mm. I also, I could only presume um, that art writing had to complement that research process yeah. in a way that maybe she was relying on it more than other curators would who did oh, have yeah. access to studios. Oh right? yeah, I wonder. Yeah. So we edge around that aspect. We all, she also pays great respect to the writer she was able to commission, again, because of an extra bit of lead time, um, to produce this beautiful catalog mm. that I think goes much deeper. Um, there's just a much lower ocean floor to it, you know, yeah. than these catalogs typically contain. And and that was also the, the result of having more time. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I agree. Those ancillary texts that... Um, run through the exhibition, one thing we touch on that that has to do with this a little bit is how to communicate around artists who are protecting something. Hmm. So the number of, for instance, non-binary women and um, artists of color involved in this show, again, a huge stat is that it's over 90% women and non-binary. It's, mm-hmm. it's significant. And she's also pulled, you know, artists from 58 countries. So the scope of it. And there are many artists, I would, I think you would agree, in that exhibition whose work is dealing in sort of like uh, networks of knowledge, um, oral histories, like ancestral knowledge, the, these these sort of channels that you mustn't shed too much light on, actually, mm. as you're making a work legible for a fairly broad audience. And so how do you navigate that line? I think it often comes down to the artistry of the art writing that accompanies it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's really interesting. Mm. Um I mean, it's all, it's all such an argument for maybe doing this less often. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Like, can we just do all of this less often <laughs> so we can maybe think about what we're doing for yeah. a second? Yeah. Um, and there's, yeah. That, there's a history. 
historical backbone to the show as well that was mm-hmm. that signaled that slow time that a lot of us enjoyed in the first part of the pandemic and then it you know we couldn't somehow hold on to it and um she mm-hmm. reinstalls that time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think it she bumps us off the like conveyor belt of contemporary art mm-hmm. through five capsule exhibitions do you remember that one mm-hmm. that was like just curved with velvet and oh yeah and like like caramel carpet mm-hmm. <laughs> yes it was very soothing That's it. It's just an attention to the senses throughout the show. One of the things I also really like to look for is a kind of like how much money is being spent on essentially production. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like big kind of exhibition furniture, mm-hmm. scaffolding aspects of an exhibition. Um, and also just works that are sort of monumental in size. Mm-hmm. And while there was a few instances of that, that there it it didn't scream like look how much money we've spent on mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. which i appreciated and i mm-hmm. thought that um it was a compliment to the works that were chosen as well mm-hmm. um and even when you know something could have been a throwaway production moment instead an artist was brought in to like articulate a boundary of space exactly yeah you know like kibwani kawanga so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no it's true it's true and very few video works i mean for you know again i've only been to two um venice Biennales before mm-hmm. this one but i remember having to have a whole day for the film and video works and yeah. in this case there was no great onus on its viewers and and maybe that's a choice to do with you know airflow (laughs) but (laughs) (laughs) no I think that's a good point because I really like I think I like video work more than you do Mm -hmm. like I seek it out Mm -hmm. um but it yeah it was you know and I'm not I'm not like super uncomfortable publicly and around people w slash r slash t covid (laughs) but the uh but yeah those those rooms were tight and hot and i kind of and it did make me think like we're gonna have to think this through yeah like these kinds of tiny rooms that people are filtering in and out of and also don't know how to behave in where everybody just congregates up at the door yeah i mean also this doesn't need to go into the podcast me musing about uh tight hot spaces (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so also just to say that this conversation is the second one that you had with Chetilia. The first one being at Art Toronto. um, And that was a public talk that I hear was very, was very excellent. And I think it's super cool that Chetilia is willing to do another kind of more private talk to bring that energy into, you know, a more sort of intimate in your ears space Mm. of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do have a certain aversion to live episodes of podcasts, you know what I mean? And though that conversation was initially slated for this space, uh, a technical issue prevented us from being able to transfer that over so we're, we did it twice and mm-hmm. it had the benefit of like dropping us into yeah I think a much more intimate channel and, and also a chance for us to do like rapid fire yeah, questions around her writing that. practice which she was really game for and yeah. no it was good I think ultimately it was a real reward to do it a second time and many thanks to Chuchilia for her endless energy seemingly mm-hmm. and her generosity mm-hmm. which was huge yeah absolutely um, so let's introduce a conversation between Sky Gooden and Cecilia Almani, artistic director of the 59th Venice Biennial, called The Milk of Dreams. Okay, so just to to start us where we began, I, I want to know where you began from. Um, and uh, especially for emerging curators that might be listening, how does one start 
what what happens after the phone call? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, the, the phone call is uh, a great excitement to receive, but the excitement lasts maybe five minutes. And then uh, you realize that, you know, you have to do it and it's going to be a lot of work. Uh, and I, you know, I, of course, I knew the work that was uh, in front of me, ahead of me, but it's a very long process and adventure. On one side, you have on your shoulders, you know that you are going to organize one of the most uh, prestigious exhibitions in the world. Uh, and especially, you know, as, as Italian, you feel that kind of weight of history uh, even more. But uh, you also know it's going to be uh, a ton, a ton of work because you really have to kind of to do everything, not just the exhibition, but also the fundraising and the catalog uh, and everything else that, you know, enriches an exhibition. Uh, but mm -hmm. it was, um, you know, it was, a, it was a bumpy start for me because I was uh, nominated mm -hmm. in January 2020 and just a few weeks afterwards the pandemic began. And then just a few weeks afterwards, the, there was a decision to postpone the exhibition. So in six months, I kind of started the exhibition three times. Uh, but afterwards, mm -hmm. I, I had a bit more time to think through and to conceive uh, this very large exhibition. Mm. Yes, you have notably said uh, in past interviews that you did the show from your desk. And I mean, given that, I, I just want to say it's, and I won't be the first, that it is an extremely feeling exhibition. I mean, it's one that really puts us back in our bodies and I think for many of us, it's the first time we have felt ourselves to be in our bodies in the presence of art in many years. And I wonder how you were able to do that. I mean, how were you able to privilege the somatic and the textural and, you know, the scalable from such an isolated or removed position, mm -hmm. um, especially with regards to the studio, which I know you've, you've often privileged the experience of dropping into artist studios when you're curating. So how did you manage that? And maybe was it a conscious decision to reach for the somatic, um, given this, the circumstances? Um, I think it was a process. Um, I think one of the crucial aspects of the exhibition is, of course, the body and um, how bodies change, uh, transform, uh, and ideas of metamorphosis and transformations are at the heart of the of the show. Of course, so the the body was at the center of my thinking, but um, mm. I think the sort of sensuality maybe of the exhibition or like as, as you say the somatic quality of the exhibition was also very much uh, I think an unconscious uh, outcome of having done so many studio visits online of having seen art only through the mediation of my screen and probably either consciously or unconsciously I ended up choosing and wanting to exhibit artworks that were the opposite of the ways I've seen art for two years. So I didn't mm -hmm. want uh, a lot of uh, technology in the show. I wanted uh, I wanted what I missed the most. I wanted to be in front of a painting and smell the oil paint. I wanted to be able to walk around the sculpture, to feel it, to smell it, to touch it. Uh, I wanted to, to be very aware of my body I uh, remember the sort of uh, online exhibitions and the different attempts that we've all done in these past two years of <laughs> translating the physicality of a show 
into a 3D exhibition or into, you know, like a virtual reality exhibition. But those were so, to me, they were so disappointing and there was never anything that I really enjoyed. And so I think quite unconsciously, eventually, I chose an exhibition and artworks that were very uh, textural and sensual. And there were artworks that you could smell, you could really walk around and experience with your senses. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think that became quite a trademark of the exhibition. But in a way, I think it was also a, like a reaction, all those sensorial things that for two years we kind of have missed. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask, what were the surprises given all of that? Um, what were the sort of uh, the things that engaged your senses in surprising ways when you encountered them? Or, I mean, the the I think the the most beautiful surprise is how irreplaceable that experience is. You know, uh, for a few months we all thought that you know the only thing that would exist would be NFTs and you know digital renditions of art, but. I really believe like the materiality of art uh, is still uh, the heart of our experience. So I was happily surprised that that was not replaced by any sort of mm -hmm. digital experience. As, as much as the senses were engaged, also a sense of slow time was engaged. So that's mm -hmm. something else I wanted to pour over with you um, to understand how you embedded time into the sense of the exhibition, the pacing of it, and, and gave us something back that I think many of us experienced early in the pandemic and then lost sight of, which was this ability to go deep. Um, I think perhaps a spinal cord of that experience was um, built in through those capsule exhibitions. So maybe you can sort of set the stage for us a little around how they functioned and, and how time was baked into their very existence. Sure. So the, the structure of the exhibition, which is also called The Milk of Dreams, is really articulated around five mini exhibitions that I've called the time capsules or historical capsules that are physically separated from the rest of the show, although they are uh, through the journey, you encounter not in a separate venue, but as you walk in the Arsenale, there are, let's say, rooms or spaces that have been created and designed to offer a completely different experience uh, to the viewer. The idea behind these capsules was to gather together the works of uh, women artists, mostly from the 20th century, with some exceptions, uh, that in a, in a way looked uh, at similar themes and concepts and topics of, let's say, of the, of the general exhibition. So ideas of metamorphosis, ideas of you know, the cyborg and what happens when we clash mm -hmm. with technology, but from a historical perspective. And there are several reasons I wanted to do this. I knew since the beginning I wanted to uh, include historical works. Uh, when, I, when the exhibition was postponed and I found myself with more time to be able to study and learn, I decided to go deeper into these presentations and to make them really much the heart of the exhibition. Uh, and uh, to me, they function also in terms of exhibition design as a way of, especially at the Arsenal, of breaking this sort of monumental scale that you often have to deal with because the space is so monumental. So to create another kind of gaze, an intimate, uh, more cozy uh, environment mm -hmm. where even if it's just a small photograph, it doesn't feel that it's completely overwhelmed by the rest, but you can have a different kind of encounter 
because of course often the, the, the artworks exhibited in these capsules are rather small compared to everything else. But I wanted to, to, to use this as a way of alternating big monumental and sometimes spectacular gestures or moments with moments of introspection and moments mm -hmm. in which also an intimate gaze was allowed, which is not easy usually at the Venice Biennale just because the scale of the space is very, uh, it's very daunting. As you were saying about the idea of time, these capsules do acquire a different kind of looking. It's not just passing next mm. to a big painting and, 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 and looking at it for a second and glancing at it. It, it really requires a more in-depth, intimate and slow pace act of looking. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, uh, to me, it, it was a way also of creating echoes and references and rhymes among generations and languages and artworks. Uh, so the idea after you've seen one of these capsules, you exit and you encountered works of contemporary art is that in a way are connected to what you've just seen, not necessarily in a very strictly uh, philological way, but in a way that creates analogies and correspondence that maybe we had not thought about before. Uh, so also thinking about this uh, kind of um, parallel of times or connections mm -hmm. between different times that normally you don't see in, in, a in a biennial. And I really wanted to, for this edition of the Biennale, not to focus only on the uh, now. There is plenty of super, super contemporary artworks, very young artists, mm -hmm. but I also wanted to zoom out and look at my exhibition in a, in a longer lineage of exhibitions that came before uh, and that will come next. And so to think about also what were the stories that were told in the past and what were the histories that were not told consciously or unconsciously, both at, at the, in the context of the Venice Biennale and in the larger context of art history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there was an interview in uh, the Venezia News that I read with you where the interview was comparing uh, contemporary art to a sort of spaceship that is detached from everything that precedes it. And that, you know, you've provided a backbone that connects what that spaceship contains to, to everything um, historically that you know, can ground it. And, and I was wondering, you know, did the capsules precede your artistic selections or vice versa when it comes to those contemporary artists that you're tethering? How did you sort of um, map this out in terms of what came first? They really proceed together. I mean, at different speeds, because uh, as you can imagine, the job of curating these time capsules was, uh, was really complex and it takes a very different time when you ask loans to a museum than when you ask a loan to a young artist, of course. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, they, they went parallel. Um, I, you know, I was, uh, I told the art, the contemporary artists that there would be some historical works in the show, but necessarily did not explain or did not share the content. I didn't want to, I didn't want necessarily to, to create uh, a sort of sense of having to respond to these historical capsules, especially for those who made 
uh, new works. Um, so it was, mm. um, again, it was a, they were both very long processes, but I would say they went parallel to, to each other. Mm. And they, they fed each other in a way in my mind um, as I was uh, creating the sort of curatorial journey through the space. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, also with regards to time, though, you've, you've talked in the past about how typically m people might not know this, but typically a curator of the Venice Biennale gets about three months to to sort of do their research and set up for commissioning. And you had, you know, something more like nine months or an extra year on top of that. Um, and, and I wonder if there is, though, a second version of this exhibition in your mind, mm -hmm. the one that would have had to be sort of shoehorned into that smaller allotment yeah. of time. Um, I think the, you know, it's hard to tell, of course, now I would say that while I knew I wanted to have historical works, I would not have been able to do and to present it in the way I did with the time capsules, mm -hmm. just because it's, it would have been impossible, you know, for m many of these artworks are museum loans and for a museum mm -hmm. loan, normally you need an e a year. But imagine it's during the pandemic, nobody lends anything anymore, and you're lending to an institution that is rather untraditional, meaning that, you know, it's not a museum with climate control. The spaces are, you know, gorgeous, but <laughs> they're from the 16th mm -hmm. century. So it's it was uh, it wouldn't have been the same. I think I would I don't know what I would have done in terms of layout. I never really thought about mixing the contemporary and the historical mm. works for some reason. Um, but I, I, I think it would have had a less, uh, you know, depth uh, or like, um, I don't know, it, it would have been slightly different and probably, mm -hmm. of course, less ambitious in terms of scale. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, and built into that research, I'm, I'm sure, is um, art writing, which, of course, is uh, one of our major focuses at MOMIS and through this podcast. So I wanted to also have a sense of the role that art writing played in the research you were doing, how it helped complement or fill out what couldn't be produced in a studio visit, for instance, um, whether it was artist writing you were looking to or reviews or, and, and of course, on the other side of this, the commissioning process around this beautiful catalog and the slow time that was built into its construction. Can you just give us a sense on both sides of this process, how art writing has played a role? Yeah, um, I think it, it did play a very important role and one that is also quite visible. Uh, first of all, the exhibition is titled after a uh, book by Leonora Carrington, uh, which uh, was very, who um, was very important for my thinking. She was my companion in this long journey. And I, uh, while I knew I wanted to include her since the beginning, when I started reading her writings, which are amazing, uh, between novels and short stories and also this uh, children's book, I... Um, I, know, I had a much fuller picture of her, her artistic language and practice. So that's always something that I try to do as much as I can if uh, the artist I'm working with uh, or I'm thinking of is also a writer. I think it's always quite inspiring when you read artists' uh, writings. Mm -hmm. um, and also in the show, that's also reflected in the fact that there are also... Um, um, writers in the show uh, that are not necessarily visual artists uh, like Joyce Mansour or uh, Juna Barnes. Uh, so literature and the written world 
uh, was extremely important, is extremely important in the exhibition. Um, and at the same time, I also, because I had more time, I also used this time to commission new essays for the catalog, which is something that is usually very hard just because it's you have very, very little time to also that do the the, the catalog. Mm -hmm. So very often you just limit yourself to you know to writing about each artist. Um, but it was important to me, and um, so the sort of conceptual and theoretical or philosophical research that I was doing appears very much in the catalog with writing by Mel Wai Chen or uh, Jack Halberstam or Silvia Federici or Marina Warner, mm. who is an incredible writer that has been so important for my research. So they also went kind of parallel and they helped me shape uh, some of the thinking behind the, the, the exhibition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an unprecedented um, catalog in so many ways. And and again, sort of baked into um, the slowness that we've been talking about, it really bears that out. Um, I, I wonder on the other side of uh, this art writing question, of course, is the reviews. And first of all, do you read your reviews? Uh, I do. I mean, I, you know, I've, I don't obsessively read them, but I receive them. Mm -hmm. Uh, what is it called the press coverage every day and I you know I, I go through it it's not just about the exhibition it's about you know the culture in general and so uh, yes I, I do I you know I, I take them with enough distance so that even if it's a bad review I don't I don't get sad, um, but it, it's okay. You know, I think it's uh, it's part of the game. I also feel like you know I've I've done so many interviews and I, I know what it takes to write a piece. So mm -hmm. I, at, at least mm -hmm. out of the respect of the colleagues and people I, I met during the openings and I spent so many so much time together. I of course I I, I read them. I remember you and I had a brief chat about one in particular that helps sort of reify or confirm your conviction that. Um, a show with, you know, over 90% women at the center of it is still required and there's still quite a bit of educating to do around, mm -hmm. um, you know, how we're framing a conversation uh, like this one. Can, can you talk a bit about what that review was or how it sits in your mind now? Yeah, um, you're, what you're referring to is a review that appeared during the opening days in the Financial Times, so of course a major leading newspaper that has always a great art coverage. And um, the writer, whose name is Jackie Wulschlager, uh, she she does a review. She wrote a review about my show and about the pavilions and the other exhibitions in town. And then, you know, I think she talked quite nicely about many artworks. And as often happens, also find some flaws. But then, like out of the blue, she comes out with a sentence which I'm gonna quote: uh, "By choosing almost exclusively women, Alemania has paid a severe price in terms of quality." A cost mm. obvious too, in the contrast with many superb exhibitions by male artists across town. End of quote. Which uh, you know, I yeah. it's uh, it's uh, but you know, again, I I love it because in a way, so many people have asked me why do you think it's still necessary to do an exhibition that features uh, so many women. <laughs> the answer you have it in front of you because I think <laughs> uh, the the sort of uh, the, the the thought that women art or 
I don't even know what it means, like women art. I don't believe necessarily in the category of women art, but that somebody mm-hmm, could think mm-hmm. that that's, there is less quality there because of their gender is still shocking. Uh, mm-hmm. And also that you can have it printed in, in a pretty serious newspaper. So it's, um, yes. you know, I think it's, you know, I, I, it's not to go and look at every single word who cares it's just a review but I do feel like that this this is something that fuels me it doesn't just upset me but it makes me want to do more and more shows like that (laughs) because there are people that think that women artists are less talented than than Anthony Gormley or Anish Kapoor so right right (laughs) okay Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's directing, isn't it? And I mean, because whether or not you call this a feminist gesture um, in terms of framing, obviously grouping together this many women artists requires some conscientious thought towards what version of woman am I presenting? So I, I do want to better understand how consciously, whether in preparation or just in reflection, did you? how did you answer that for yourself? Um, you know, I always try to be very respectful to the many voices and the multiplicity of voices that I'm representing. So um, this is clearly not an exhibition about the history of feminism, as there have Mm -hmm. been amazing shows in the past, which have informed my knowledge and my thought, you know, WAC and uh, Radical Women and, uh, you know, Fantastic Women. but um, it's a show that does many things. Uh, one of them is featuring uh, a wide majority of, um, of, of women artists, but that doesn't mean that the subject is that. So I'm always very careful in trying not to essentialize what art or female art is, because I don't really know, because I look at my show and, you know, I, I think uh, there are artists that you would certainly label as feminists and others that would totally reject that label and others that are very fed up with the idea of talking about this and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know it's not women against men it's who like we're beyond beyond that so i i try not to impose necessarily big declaration or statements because i got to this point as a process i didn't just wake up one day and say oh i'm gonna just do women artists i got there you know, as a process, when I wanted to invite a man, I invited a man. There are there are mm-hmm. plenty of men in the show. Uh, but yes, for instance, when <laughs> I did uh, capsules, those were more intentional, focusing on women artists, and that was sort of historical reread and reevaluate reevaluation of certain moments in art history where I thought it could be helpful to be a bit more open about that because mm-hmm. what we knew about surrealism is mostly a story of men. So in that case, I was a bit more intentional. But when it came to the contemporary art side, I felt a certain freedom that uh, I, I I really kept uh, I kept as a, as a value for, for my show. And then, of course, you know, I, I'm not naive. And um, I also look at the history of the Venice Biennale and mine happened in the 127th year. And besides Raf Rugoff, who did a show that was pretty equally split, all previous biennales were mm-hmm. presenting a majority of men. And I'm not talking about the 1920s. <laughs> I'm talking about <laughs> the 2000s. And so I just yes, think yeah. it's not a world that, it's not a picture of, of, of the society we live in. It's not real. It's not. You don't have the sense of what's happening out there in the world. 
Yes, yes. And when it's a majority men, we don't call it anything. Yeah, exactly. Among some of the unprecedented features of this um, exhibition, and it's, you know, the, the National Pavilions among them, you know, are featuring many female artists of colour for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, we do residencies twice a year, and one of our most recent residencies was devoted to a Black cohort. And many of those residents had the opportunity to go to Loophole Retreat, which was centering around Simone Lee's incredible pavilion. And one of those residents was reflecting to us in hindsight and said, our bodies were never expected to be there. So I wonder how you were keeping a handle on that uh, aspect of your programming as well. When we are talking about, say, Belkis Sion's Colographic Prints or Simone Lee and Brick House, two, two pieces that really start the arsenale for us, the show, I find, is full of the unspoken and threaded with what's communicated outside of language and what women and people of colour especially have long entrusted themselves to, which are networks of knowledge and ancestral oral histories and, you know, that which needs to be protected and entrusted. And so how as a curator are you able to honour those unspoken features of the work when it's also your job to communicate and make things as accessible as possible? Mm -hmm. I think it's about finding a good balance. And uh, to me as a curator, especially in this exhibition, one of my most important priorities was to give the right space. And by space, I don't necessarily mean physical space. I mean physical space, but also mental space to the presentations. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, of course, uh, I cannot make every single artist happy, but I try really, really hard to build an exhibition around the artworks themselves, uh, not by assigning just a space randomly. Uh, And so I think already by placing an artwork in its right space, both, again, both psychologically and physically, you create an environment that allows for different entry points. Uh, And then, of course, you know, you have tools like the captions and uh, the catalog that adds to that um, understanding and sort of education and interpretation. But to me, it's also, you know, it's as for all of us curators, it's always tricky to uh, necessarily dictate a meaning, which I don't want to mm. do. Uh, it's always hard because, you, you know, you, you try to give information to the audience so that they can also have an entry point. And likely most of the people that see the show have less art experience than you. So try not to be too necessarily too savvy or too, uh, you know, too art jargon, uh, but mm. to also, in a way, let the work speak for itself. And while, you know, I can mention some of the references of Belkisayon or Simone Lee, uh, there are plenty that are not in the caption, there are plenty that are not in the catalogue, and you know there are many different ways for the audience to connect to these works. I don't think they are uh, hostile. I think most of the works in the show are generous, and they do what a good artwork does, which is opening up different doors for the viewer to bring also their own personal sort of story and life into the picture and create their own reading of these works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've, I've read you say that your first sort of master you're serving, quote unquote, in a show like this is the artist. Um, and for that, I I understand from talking to other curators, there's a certain kind of radical element <laughs> to, to that being true. Um, how, how do you regard 
how novel that is as a priority to be in service to your artist primarily. And mm-hmm. who else would you be serving? I don't know if it's radical. I think um, I see myself as a creator, as someone that works for the artist. You know, it's, my job is in service of the artist because without the artist, I would not have a job. Um, so <laughs> um, I think it's it's my my first my I would say I have two clients the first one is the artist the second one is the audience yes. uh, and so of course when it comes to the second one my job as a curator is to make a, or at least what I think my job is is to make the show a show that is uh, understandable readable without even reading the captions that is approachable accessible uh, mm-hmm. also to a person that doesn't necessarily understand much about contemporary art on the first side, the artist, you know, I think it's a very personal, also a personal sort of challenge that I had. I just remember how many artists in previous edition, and I'm talking maybe also 20 years ago, were like mm-hmm. devastated by the horror of being part of this show because it's so complicated, it's so challenging, you know, you're lacking everything, you're lacking money, you're lacking space. Um, so I try and make them happy because I think it, it is one of the most important exhibitions they will be part of and maybe nothing will come out of it. I think it's totally fine. But for most people, mm-hmm. this is a life-changing um a life-changing experience. And so I wanted to make sure that they could have the work they wanted, the presentation they wanted. And to me, as a curator, I I work like this. I work starting from the actual artworks. I place them in space and then I build the narrative from the artwork. I don't consider myself what in the past has been considered like an author. Uh, I think I, I bring in my narrative and my story, but the story is really made by the different pieces of this giant puzzle. And those are the artworks and the artists. So I'm there to facilitate uh, uh, and to communicate um, a message, but at the same time, I don't need to be, you know, in the front line. I'm just there to, to make sure mm-hmm. that the puzzle is is fully completed and, and, you know, it rests on a good flat surface without bumps. Thank you for that. Um- in terms of sort of the agility that you have had to demonstrate over the arc of this exhibition, I mean, there's any number of things that we can point to. Uh, you've spoken very powerfully um, about history knocking on the door of the biennial many times over its 127 year history, and sometimes quite forcefully. And you have had in your sight line the 1948 biennial, which was termed the rebirth biennial. It was the first edition after World War II. I wonder if you can first just talk to us a little bit about the the sort of ligament that you're drawing between 1948 and 2022 and, and the lessons that you've taken from that biennial in particular. I think it's important to know that when the exhibition was postponed in 2020 because there was no architecture biennial, uh, we decided to do because the space was there and, you know, of course, traveling was complicated, but still there is an audience in Venice. So we decided to put together an exhibition that looked at the history of the Venice Biennale uh, through its own archive, because the archive is there, mm. physically there. So it was easy. We didn't have to ship anything. And that was curated by the six curators of the different disciplines, so art, architecture, cinema, dance, music, and theater. And we Mm. basically looked at this incredible archive, which is called ASAC, uh, through the lens of the crisis or the trauma or the war. So looking at certain moments in its very rich history where the 
Biennale kind of clashed with a big history. So we started with the fascism and the 20 years of the fascist Biennale, then, uh, you know, looking at the 60 and 68 with the student protests and the 70s. Uh, so mm-hmm. kind of looking at similar times uh, compared to the crisis that we were living in 2020. And that allowed me to study quite a bit of the history of the Biennale, which I was familiar, but not necessarily to that point of detail. Uh, and when looking at the 1948 Biennial, which was a very important edition, the last edition happened in 1942, but you have to imagine that from 1930 to, uh, or even from 1928 to 42, the Biennial was a fascist uh, tool. Mm. It was an instrument of the fascist government because it was a public institution. So there wasn't really anything that exciting or interesting to see uh, in the in the show for 20 years. So when the Biennale reopens in 48, uh, it does two very important things. First of all, it opens up to very contemporary tendencies that are happening globally and brings them to Venice. For instance, one example is Peggy Guggenheim, who before mm. opening and buying her palazzo in on the Canal Grande, she actually brings her collection to the Greek pavilion. The Greek pavilion was there, but Greece could not participate because it was still torn by the civil war. And so Peggy Guggenheim brings her incredible collection of surrealist painting and the first American um, abstract uh, expressionist to Venice in 1948 in a, an exhibition designed by Carlos Scarpa, who was an amazing uh, Venetian architect in a very, very radical you know, position. But at the same time, the other thing that it did, it opened up uh, to all those movements and artists and languages that were censored and cancelled and obliterated in the 20 years of fascism. Uh, And so, for instance, uh, Pablo Picasso gets a solo show. Picasso is 67 in 1948, and he had never participated in the Venice Biennale, which, of course, Mm. it's it's kind of shocking. But at the same time, there was a show of the Impressionists, because the Impressionists were always, or like French culture was always very much, you know, put aside by the Italian government uh, and by, by the Biennale. So it was an occasion to both look forward and be very innovative, very young and very open to the new, but also to do this job and this exercise of looking backwards at all those mm-hmm. holes or gaps or things that uh, consciously or unconsciously were kept out of the, of the Biennale. And so when I started thinking about the time capsules, I really wanted to, to also look back at the history of the Biennale and look at who were the artists that were featured in, you know, in the 20th century and who were the ones that were not featured but could have been featured and sort of, in a way, not necessarily correcting but expanding the notion of what we actually study and think about art history to include other voices that, in, you know, in my case, were women artists but somebody could do the same, you know, bringing in different kinds of voices and languages to kind of include artists that were put aside for different reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would say it to sort of zoom in on one of the um, seemingly insurmountable challenges that you faced in, in drawing this exhibition together and staying responsive throughout its uh, course is uh, the war in Ukraine. And I, I wonder if, we could, if you can sort of drop us into those, those weeks last spring 
where you were, for instance, bringing in an, uh, a painting by Maria Primachenko, sort of late in the exhibition run, or for helping foreground um, the erection of a Ukrainian pavilion, and and what those responses looked like even further still after sort of the press died down, mm-hmm. and you were still, I think, um, staying quite elastic to that that situation. Yeah, I mean, it was of course uh, a very stressful and dramatic uh, time of course um i think there is also a different perception here in italy ukraine is so close to us and i think especially in the like the way people felt the war in europe is very different from the way we feel it here in america or i believe also in canada just for the kind of geographic mm-hmm. distance um mm-hmm. and so you know in a way it was I think that Russia invaded Ukraine maybe six weeks before the opening of the show uh, in late February. And I, you know, as you get to that point, I was, I remember I was about to go to Venice to start installing and you just ask yourself, what what does it even mean that I'm taking a plane and I'm going to install, you know, a multi-million exhibition when, you know, a country that I visited, I worked in many times is being you know, invaded and bombed mm-hmm. by by Russia. So in a way, existentially, you just ask yourself, literally, what is my job? What, what, why are we doing this? And then, of course, on top of that, there is a pressure that the Venice Biennale gets because of its structure with the national pavilions. In a way, it's a little bit of a, a small UN mm-hmm. uh, convening when it comes to the, the exhibition. So... And that, that I don't believe the same pressure was felt by Documenta, but simply not because it's a less important exhibition, but simply because they are not structured on the idea of nation, which is of course an obsolete mm. idea, but it is what you know the Biennale is, is founded on the idea of the international expositions. So all of a sudden, here we have the Russian pavilion on one side and the Ukrainian pavilion on the other side. And while I'm not responsible for the national pavilions, of course, uh, I, I think it was a very important. A very urgent moment for the whole institution to figure out what to do. And, you know, our mission or our really hope was to help as much as we could the Ukrainian pavilion to actually happen. So helping them financially and logistically to, to you know, to struggle mm. to, 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 to install this artwork by uh, Pavlo Mavok, um, Makov that came, was driven in a car out of Ukraine by one of the curators, mm-hmm. uh, but was missing some parts. So we helped them to that to do that it's important to know that that biennale didn't do anything about the russian pavilion because it's important to understand that the national pavilions are independent they're almost like embassies mm-hmm. they work on their own grounds uh, and the building is theirs but they decided to withdraw which i think was a good decision so the, the russian pavilion stayed empty and then we did a few other uh, projects that we thought could highlight and give visibility to Ukrainian culture. As you said, I included very, very last minute a painting by a gouache by Maria Primachenko, who uh, mm. is a Ukrainian artist. Uh, we did, in collaboration with the Ukrainian pavilion, a project called Piazza Ukraina, uh, which took place in the grounds of the Giardini, which is, in a way, the most important. A space where the national, the historical national pavilions are, where Russia is, because Ukrainian pavilion is at the Arsenale. We gave them a very big space uh, to create with a Ukrainian architect that would be a gathering space, but also a place where to exhibit in the form of posters or with pasted posters 
artworks made by artists that were still in Ukraine and of course could not travel. Uh, but that kept, like, keeps going you know, on. You know, it's every month we change these posters, we get new images. And so that's been a very active site. And then, you know, being there and we try to offer any possible space, uh, both physical and, you know, conceptual for discussion and conversations in mm-hmm. so that, you know, the Ukrainian culture could have as much visibility as we could offer. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you've had any mentorship uh, along this process and at or historically someone who has, you know, lit a candle for you um, mm-hmm. in terms of how to respond and stay responsive as a curator? And I had lots of people that were important in my sort of job or, you know, when I approached this job. I think the first one was Marsha Tucker, who mm. was the founder of the new museum. And unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago. She was my teacher when I was at Bard, Bard College mm-hmm. uh, and doing my MA in curatorial practice. And she was just amazing because she was, uh, while the program was extremely, you know, theory-based, uh, she was a very matter-of-fact person. You know, she was very mm-hmm. direct. She she really taught me that this, this job is also a very physical and practical and pragmatic job. And she wasn't mm-hmm. afraid of clashing with students. And we, we all, we, uh, we disagree most of the time, but <laughs> she really trained our mind to think in a very pragmatic way. Uh, and mm-hmm. then I think someone like Francesco Bonami, who is an Italian curator who also did the Venice Biennale in 2003, has always been very, very generous with me, not just in terms of helping mm-hmm. me at the beginning of my job when offering me jobs as assistant and, and, so, and, and so forth, but has always been very, very generous with young, with young curators. I think that's something that I've learned from him and from other people how being surrounded by young people and young curators is so, so vital also for yeah. you, not just for them. Yes. Um, and so <laughs> it's, uh, it's something that is, I'm trying, you know, to do as much as I can also with younger curators. Yeah. Wonderful. And, and maybe on that note, a final question to you before we do these quick rapid fires is, um, what do you wish you had known when you were starting this process that you know now? Uh, I always make a joke that I knew too much and I wish I had not known so much. (laughs) And many people think because I'm Italian, it's so much easier uh, because, you know, you speak the language, but actually it's much easier not to understand a lot of the things that are going on and just pretend that you, you know, you're, you know. You don't speak the language, uh, but so that I know it's a silly joke. But I I knew a lot, and uh, most importantly, I knew it was gonna be a lot of work, and I had yeah. to start <laughs> very early. So yeah, yeah. Okay, so this uh, this won't take long. I know I need to let you go, but we'll just run through a few questions as they relate to your writing practice. So and just answer off the hip if you can, um, whatever comes to mind. So the first question is, do you like writing? No. (laughs) (laughs) I like eating ice cream. I like... uh, (laughs) No, I don't think that the category of liking applies to to writing. Let's not get carried away. (laughs) Okay. When you're writing, when you're in the process of writing something, when do you write? Uh, What time of day do you favor? Things like that. I would say all day long. I don't have a weird habit of writing at night or 
So mm. I try to, to start in the morning. It's a job for me. So I start in the morning yeah. as soon as I can sit at my desk. How much do you delete or do you edit as you go? What, what kind of writer are you when it comes to self-editing? Uh, I do a lot of self-editing. I think I, maybe because I write in a language that is not my native language, I tend to structure the text with, you know, more like the way I give a speech, like talking points, and then I expand mm. and contract. Um, I often talk out loud that helps me a lot I'm thinking mm. I'm a more vocal person than a writing person so that helps me a lot uh, but yes there is a lot of editing and re-editing and readjusting like I like the idea of you reading aloud that makes sense as a reader of your of your <laughs> work I love that who do you write for uh now I write sometimes for artist catalogs, uh, for essays. I don't have, I used to write the most recent uh, kind of constant uh, uh, writing assignment I had. I, I was writing a column on D. D is the f- women insert of La Repubblica, which is the most important newspaper. in. It's like the New York Times. Times Magazine. Uh, so I would write about a contemporary artist every week, just mm. introducing them to the to the broader public. And I love that kind of writing. I think it's very, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, but that's something that I had to pause during the Biennale. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and maybe even just to ask that question a second time, is there um, an ideal audience in your mind? Um, I try to write for a very broad audience, you know, in a way, the audience I keep in mind when I write is the same audience that comes to the Highline or goes to Venice, you know, broad audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Do you ever write under the influence? Of drugs? (laughs) (laughs) Anything you like. Oh, alcohol? No, 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 no. Gotta be fresh. No, it yeah, doesn't work with fresh. me. Oh, maybe I'll try. <laughs> yeah, let's let's put that under the advisement column. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, you read and write in other languages. Is there? Do you find that writing in Italian, for instance, over English, gives you a greater sense of access to that flow, or what's your preference? Well, I honestly, I think that. Both languages got so poor because of each other. Uh, because you know, now I sometimes I don't know how to write in Italian anymore, and I'm not so proficient in it, proficient in English. So I feel like mm-hmm. they got, they both got, you know, they, they got worse. But I think Italian <laughs> is still my my language of um, of um, my 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 language of preference. And I think it's because there are lots of young curators listening. Something that I did much more when I was a younger curator was writing a lot of like critics speak and little reviews because that really exercised not just my writing skills, but also my mind. Uh, You know, those Mm -hmm. 200, 300 words reviews, uh, very important exercise. I don't do that anymore, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. No, but it's true that that's like jumping rope for um, Mm -hmm. an emerging uh, curator or writer. Okay, just two last questions for you. Which writer would you say you emulate the most? Mm. I don't. I don't think I emulate, but I admire. I turn it. 
Uh, I'm just looking at his books here. I think someone like Calvin Tompkins is a living legend. Um, And I think he's also someone that, and I'm simply oversimplifying, but that whose language is very approachable also to a broad audience. And he has been devoted to this field for so many decades that he has Mm. always my respect. And I cannot imagine writing a profile that is, I don't even know how many Mm. words, (laughs) but like Mm -hmm. pages Mm -hmm. and pages and pages. So I just admire that. Yes. Yeah. Ditto. Nice. And finally, we ask this uh, as the last question of our guests. Um, What is the pleasure of writing? The pleasure of writing is being able to communicate things that you cannot communicate verbally or that Mm. requires a different, just a different dimension to Mm -hmm. be out in the world and to exist Mm. out in the world. Maybe something that cannot be spoken, but can exist only on a a white piece of paper. Mm. Beautifully put. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you so much. Thank you twice. (laughs) Thank you so much. Maybe there will be a third time. (laughs) Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. We would like to thank Cecilia Alemani for her contribution to this season and a special thanks to Gallery 44 for their support. You can find us at patreon.com backslash backsplash (laughs) (laughs) momus art (laughs) or contact me about making a one-time contribution at skygooden at momus.ca this has been episode 42 of momus the podcast